All right, Salt Company, you guys can go ahead and take a seat. What a delight it is to be with you on this warm February Thursday. How, how warm is it right now? It's like 50 degrees. Odd, strange. Hey, it's great. What is it? Oh, it's only 38. The sun went down. That's what happens to temperature. Friends, it is super good to be with you. Like I said earlier, my name is Austin, and yeah, it's a joy to help lead Salt Company along with a great team. And tonight we are going to continue our series, Paradise Lost. We're looking at Genesis chapters one through three. This is part two of that series. And I've got a quick little thing that I wanna show you to introduce what we're talking about tonight. There's gonna be some slides on the screen, and I want you to help me out by deciding, you know, which, you, which of the two things you think is correct. This is an experiment of the Mandela effect, okay? Do you guys know what this is? It's when there's this odd reality where you don't know which one's true or not, okay? So is it Looney Tunes or is it Looney Tunes? Double O or is it the U? The answer is, this is correct, on the right, that's right. It is with a U. Okay, the next one, what do we got? Febreze. Do you spell Febreze with one E or two E's? The correct answer is that there's only one E. Hey, a lot of you guys got that wrong. A lot of you got that one wrong. Okay, the third option, what do we got here? Skechers, ooh. Is there a T in Skechers or no T? Uh, there's no T. What? There's no tea in Skechers. Are you kidding me? Okay, okay. What's the last one? We got one more. C-3PO. Some Star Wars fans out here. Is he all gold or does he have a silver leg? He's got a silver leg. I, I think you might be It's both? Hey, trick question. Gotcha. All right. Hey, here's, here's the reality. How is it possible that some, some of you guys got that way wrong? Like you probably went 0 for 4. How is it possible that you've seen these things? You kind of know, you know, what it was, but then you got deceived into thinking that it was something totally different. How is it possible that you're able to, in your brain, hold things that are not reality? Hold ideas about something that's actually not true, even if you've seen it before. How is it possible that we can imagine things that don't match up with what is true? That's what we're talking about tonight. Dallas Willard has this quote that says, we live at the mercy of our ideas, okay? Our ideas. An idea is just an assumption about reality, an assumption about the way the world works. And the interesting thing about you and me is that we have the ability to hold in our mind ideas that do not correspond with the way the world actually works. We can have assumption, assumptions about reality that are actually non-reality. We can believe lies. Now this is simultaneously super creative, but also incredibly destructive. Think about this with me. The reason we're able, or the, way, the, you know, the reality that we are able to think of things that are not real is the way that we're able to get so many of the most creative stories that we've ever heard. You know, like a superhero story, the only reason that that's 
awesome is because somebody in that story is flying around or using x-ray vision or has super strength, something that is not actually how the world works. But at the same time, they can be destructive because those, I, those things that we are believing can ruin relationships or maybe just fool us. Have you ever gone to like the tar- to Target, the Target, gone to Target and uh, you know, you like stand in front of the automatic doors and you wave your hand over the automatic doors because you're using the force, you know what I'm saying? Right, okay. That, that isn't actually what's happening. You're not actually using the force, but as you're a kid, if you're going up to Target and you wave your hand at the right time, you might think that you actually got the power. But John Mark Comer defines reality as what you run into when you're wrong, okay? If reality is what you run into when you're wrong, then unfortunately that means that you're not a Jedi and you don't actually have the capability of using the force. Okay, but believing things that aren't reality is not ultimately about whether there's a T in Skechers or if you're a Jedi or not. It's not necessarily that playful. If you believe things, that do not correspond with reality, it can be incredibly detrimental. There are ideas in your head right now that are shaping the trajectory of your life. Ideas about marriage, ideas about career, ideas about money, ideas about who God is, ideas about your sexuality, ideas about politics, ideas about how to find happiness. And what we see with those ideas, I mean, if you're believing something in that sphere that does not match up with the way the world works, that can be incredibly destructive. It can ruin relationships. It can cause you mental or physical or emotional pain. So our ideas about things are incredibly important. They're incredibly important, especially our ideas about three categories. Who is God? Who are we or who am I? And what is the good life? Three simple questions. But our ideas of the answers are a big deal. And that's why the enemy of your soul, that's right, there's an enemy of your soul, would try to attack those three ideas. Try to attack who you think God is, who you think you are, and who you, what you think the good life is. There is an enemy who has deceptive ways, who wants you to believe things that do not match up with reality. He's the reason that your ideas about the world might be flawed. And so here's where we're going tonight. Quite simple. That the fall of humanity is revealed in Genesis 3, and it's a story about what happened, how we went wrong, and how we were ultimately deceived by the enemy. So we've got a little uh, flow of tonight. We're going to see this big idea that the fall of humanity was, one, introduced through an idea, two, it was followed by an action, and three, it resulted in shame. That's where we're going tonight. So we're going to start with one, how it was introduced through an idea. Let's look at Genesis chapter 2 is where we're starting actually to to set us up. And then we're going to go into chapter 3. Genesis chapter 2, 15 through 17 says, 
The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now jump to Genesis chapter three at the very beginning. Verse one says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Okay, perhaps this is your first time reading Genesis chapter three and right away you're like, you're kind of checking out because there's a talking snake. Is that actually what we think happened? Ah, this is kind of whack. Okay, I hear you. Let me level with you for a second. Whether this is a literal account of an actual talking snake who appeared to a woman and had them eat an apple or not, or if it's a poetic symbol of the human condition, I don't necessarily have time to prove to you right now, but here's what I want you to think about throughout this story, that this is the human condition. Regardless of if it was a literal talking snake or if it is poetic symbolism, can't you see in here the human condition? That's what I want you to be just thinking about throughout the evening. This story about humanity being deceived and twisted, uh, being deceived by twisted words, it's resonated for us for millennia. Time and time again, we can go back to this story and see ourselves in it. And so that's what I just invite you guys to do with me tonight. I want you to listen and digest this story about the human condition. So let's look carefully at what the serpent the personification of evil or the devil said. What did he say to Eve when he appeared to her? He did not come at Eve with a sword, with a gun, or with a fighting attitude, but with an idea. Look at what he said. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Did God actually say that? See what he's doing? He's just trying to insert a little bit of doubt. It's brilliant. Then what else does he say? You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. This is deception at its finest because he's telling a lie, but it's only like 5% false. That's where the best lies are. 95% true, 5% false, but the 5% is the most important. The serpent does not deny that God exists, does not deny that God is the authority. However, the serpent does deny God's goodness. God's real, God made you, he's the authority, but does God really want what's best for you? Can you really trust God? If the devil can convince you that God is big and mighty and the authority and powerful, but he's got a twinge of evil in him, then the devil has successfully made God the big scary villain 
and made himself the hero of the story. This is the craftiness of the devil, the craftiness of his lies. His weapon is an idea. Can I actually trust God? But his ideas that he presents are not true. What we see here is that the devil is a liar. Jesus knows all about this guy. And actually, he talks about him in John chapter 8. Listen to what Jesus says about the devil. The words will be on the screen. This is what he says. The devil was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. According to Jesus, there is absolutely a devil, and that he is absolutely a liar. He's got this classic move. He's always going to try to take you out by saying something that isn't true. By lying to you, it's why you say to yourself things like, if anybody actually knew me, they would reject me. I just got to stay hidden. Or the only way to feel joy is to not feel at all, so I'll just do another night out, just one more drink. There's no way God loves me, not after I did that. Lies. Ways that the devil is trying to take you out. It's his classic move. 95% true, 5% false. The enemy loves to make you believe a lie like that. So my question for you right now is just very simply, what is the story that you're telling to yourself? Like who is forming your ideas? Is it true? If the enemy is a liar, I've got good news for you tonight. The hero is a truth teller. His name is Jesus. You guys, in the same chapter where Jesus describes the devil as the father of lies, look at the line that he drops. John 8, verse 31. If you abide in my word, as in Jesus' word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. A bunch of Old Testament prophecies were, they described the coming Messiah, they, de they described Jesus as a warrior, a guy that was going to stomp on the enemy. This is why a bunch of people who followed Jesus, even some of his closest friends, were just waiting for the moment that he would take up the sword and bring all of his buddies and take down the enemy. You know, they were just waiting for him to build up this army and we're going to go physically destroy their enemies. He never did that. But Jesus was most definitely at war. He was most definitely a warrior, but not against flesh and blood. Jesus was at war with the lies that took humanity captive. He was at war with the lies of the devil. How? As a truth teller. Jesus has the words of truth, the words of eternal life. The truth about who God is, about who you are, and what the good life is. What he says matches with reality. So you can trust him. You can listen to his voice to find the truth. You see, the devil is trying to ruin your life by deceiving you 
and telling you things that will undermine relationships, but Jesus is offering you a way of life that aligns with God's design, the good life. But the problem with you and me is that the deception works. We fall for it so often. The age-old move of deception is effective. It's introduced through an idea, and secondly, it's followed by an action. Look at Genesis chapter 3, verses 6 through 7. Let's see what Eve does. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So what we see is that they ate. They ate of the fruit that God said not to eat of. But the reason that she ate the forbidden fruit was because it looked good. It looked tasty. It was pleasing to the eye. The lie was desirable. I hope you'll hear me on this. God is not thinking that you are dumb for sinning. The lie was desirable. It makes total sense. His heart, though, is to reveal the truth and to reveal that that's not actually what's best for you. But what we see is that the frustrating nature of temptation, the frustrating root of sin is that you and I become super convinced that sin is actually good for us. That following the lies of the enemy are actually, they sound kind of nice. They sound good. And so we fall for it. Our own desires have been bent out of shape so that we want what isn't good, good for us. And these desires, not only that, but they become normalized in a society where all of us are bent out of shape. So it's hard to know what is actually good for us. The life that we want is at odds with the options available for us. Just think of like the modern shopping experience, okay? Modern shopping experience, you're walking down the center aisle and you've got movies on the left with dudes that are just absolutely jacked with a chiseled jaw, but then on the other side, you've got like bacon and gummy worms. You know what I'm saying? The modern shopping experience. So if you've got like bikinis on one side and you've got cheesecake on the other. Like you can't actually have both, but it's just like this tug of war of what is available to you and you know what's not good for you, but you fall for it anyway. There is a tug of war going on in us because what is not good for us looks desirable. And so we want it. The thing that's not good for us looks good so we eat this, drink this, tell people to do this and that thing, and finally, you'll be happy. Come with us, sleep with that person, party with us, get in that crowd, and then you'll finally have what you want. Sin always looks appealing, but it will always lead to pain. It's the thing that Eve didn't realize was gonna happen, but felt on the other side. Guys, have you ever taken a drink of something that you thought was lemonade, but it was actually piss? 
<laughs> Have I? No, 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 no. No, me neither. No, sounds terrible though, right? You think some of these lemonade was actually piss? Okay, I have not done that, and I really, really hope that you have not either. But as terrible as that is, I know, I think, what that would feel like because I have willingly followed through with a distorted desire that I have, and I have sinned against a holy God thinking that it was going to be great for me, but turns out to have a terrible taste. This is what sin is. It's like lemonade, but it's not actually lemonade. After you take it, after you drink it, you feel absolutely disgusting. You can't believe you did it in the first place. It did not bring peace. It brought shame. It did not actually turn out the way you thought it would. Don't you want somebody that's going to tell you, like a good friend, don't drink the lemonade. It's not going to turn out the way you think it is, man. This is the friend that we have in Jesus. He came to give you truth. He is a good friend who tells you the type of thing that can ruin your life and is asking you not to do it. Gossiping behind people's backs, that's not lemonade. Pornography, that's not lemonade. Getting drunk with your friends, that's not lemonade. Putting people down so that you can feel a little bit better, that's not lemonade. might look refreshing in the moment, but I don't think you're going to like the way it tastes. The amazing thing about Jesus is that he will never ask you to do something, and he will never ask you to not do something that he himself has not done or not done. He will always be the perfect example for you. He will never ask you to do something that he himself did not do. He only gives you truth and then gives you power to do what's right. So when he invites you into a life of fighting sin, you can have confidence that he knows what's best because he actually did it perfectly. He's the only one that was able to perfectly resist the enemy. He's the only one that was perfectly able to resist the lemonade. Jesus never sinned. And there's this epic story in Luke chapter 4 that I want to show you, that's kind of like a parallel to what's going on in the garden between the serpent and Eve. This is a time when the devil himself appeared to Jesus to try and tempt him. And just, just like Eve did, but look, this is, this is how Jesus got it right. Check, check this out, Luke chapter 4, verse 1 through 4, and then verse 13. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. Shocker. Uh, the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, okay, let me pause right there for a second. There was a time just before this where Jesus was getting baptized. The skies literally opened up and a loud voice like thunder came down and said, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. And the devil says, if if you're the son of God, it always starts with an idea. It was very clear that Jesus was the son of God, but the devil says, if. Okay. If you're the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, 
it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. The devil would tempt him for several more times and Jesus would answer in the same way, responding with scripture. And then we get to verse 13 where it says, and when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. How did Jesus fight the devil? With truth. He's a truth teller with the word of God, with Bible that he had locked into his head. I guarantee you that if you were to spend a couple minutes a day memorizing the word of God, then you would be able to fight sin with more strength than you ever have before. Guaranteed. The word of God is truth. But what I want you to see here is there is a clear picture of Jesus achieving what none of us ever could. When Adam and Eve failed, Jesus succeeded. When you and I failed, Jesus succeeded. So what will you put your hope in? Will you put your hope in your own ability to stay clean and not give in? Or will you put your hope in the finished work of Jesus who perfectly stayed clean, never gave in? You need his perfection. He's everything that we could not be. He's your only hope. So here's what we've seen so far about deception of the enemy, that it was introduced through an idea, that it was followed by action, and thirdly, it resulted in shame. Let's keep reading Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 through 13. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman who you gave me her you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate it. Classic blame shifting, my goodness. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. When Adam and Eve took of the forbidden fruit and did what they knew God said was wrong, they were instantly struck with shame. This idea that they needed to hide so when they hear his footsteps, they bolt. They tried to hide from God. I don't know about you, but I find this incredibly relatable. That like in my darkest moments, I definitely did not want anybody to see what a mess I had made. And I definitely didn't want to let like an authority figure see what I had done. I need to hide, I need to cover it up and... Maybe if I stay far away, then nobody will actually find out. And here's what this is revealing, guys. That the reason we think we need to hide is because we are guilty of sin. We are guilty of doing what we knew we shouldn't have done in the first place. And so we feel like we need to cover it up. So we run behind shrubs but maybe not, it's not actually shrubs, it's our athleticism, 
or it's our appearance, or it's our grades, or it's our likability. We run and try and hide behind things to try and cover it up and make it seem like we're okay, like we never messed up. To hide from our guilt, but, and maybe it's like we're believing that if, if I don't see God, then maybe he can't see me. He can't see the way that I've messed up. Maybe if I don't see him, then he can't see me. This reminded me of a pretty massive fact that you need to know about my elementary years. Guys, you are looking at the 2010 Purple Team Patrol Captain. That's right. I was a patrol captain for the Purple Team. It was epic. You guys remember the vests and the flags? You know, a bunch of 11-year-olds just protecting lives. Absolutely epic. Okay, do you remember one of the more fundamental rules from the handbook of the patrols? If the bus driver can't see you, no, sorry, sorry, sorry. If you can't see the bus driver, they can't see you, right? Fundamental. If you can't see them, they can't see you. So you got to reposition yourself to make sure that you're not going to get hit by the bus. Even when you cannot see God, whether intentionally or unintentionally, He can see you. You can't actually hide from him. Now, this might actually make us a little bit nervous because now we're starting to think, shoot, if he can actually see me, everything that I've done, why would he want anything to do with me? If he can actually see our deepest, darkest secrets, if we can't actually hide them from him, then maybe it's not a good thing that he can see me. But the good news about the heart of God is that even though he sees every part of you, the dark parts, the ones that you would never tell anybody else, the ones that even sitting in your chair right now, you just hate thinking that you did that. Even though God sees all of those things, man, he loves you. And not only that, he's pursuing you in love. You might be running away from him, wanting nothing to do with him, and he is running after you. He wants life with you, even though you're messed up. The overwhelming evidence or emphasis of the story of the Bible the way of Jesus, the good news of the gospel is not your ability to stay clean. It is about the relentless pursuit of a God who loves sinners. It is about his stubborn love for you. That no matter how many times you turn your back on him, he's coming after you in love. He wants life with you. So all of us, we can stop trying to achieve perfection on our own and we can own up to our failures and we can kind of come out from behind the shrubs and say, God, this is what I've done. I've messed up. And you know what you're gonna realize? God knew the whole time. He's not surprised by your sin. He's got compassion in his eyes. At your worst, God comes near. 
ready to forgive you, ready to give you life to the full. At your worst, God comes near. At your best, God comes near too. But even in your failure, God comes near. Even in your ignorance, God comes near. Even in your dismissiveness, God comes near. All because Jesus experienced the separation from him that you and I deserve. Jesus did for humanity what we could never do for ourselves. He was without sin, which means that he would become the perfect sacrifice to absorb all of God's righteous anger against sin. But because Jesus took all that sin on the cross, there's none left for you if you have put your trust in him. All that there is for you is love and presence, nearness to God forever. But not only that, he rose from the dead. Jesus rose from the dead, which gives us confidence that he does, in fact, have power over our three greatest enemies. Sin, the devil, and death. Jesus has power over all three. And he invites you into this new life to believe that he did all of those for you. So that shame would be gone. You wouldn't need to hide anymore. At your worst, God is near. So we can come out from behind the shrubs. We don't need to be afraid. We don't need to hide from God anymore. This is the good news of the gospel. That what Jesus has achieved for us allows us to come before God with confidence that he loves us, that he sees us, that he wants us. So in conclusion, I just want you to see this clearly, that the fall of humanity was, one, introduced through an idea, followed by an action, resulting in shame. But what I want you to see ultimately is that the gospel of Jesus has the perfect answer to this flow, that the gospel of Jesus gives us truth to fight lies, power to do what is right, and a new life that is free of shame. And so as we go from this place, you know, I think that there are three steps that might be helpful for you tonight, one for each of these points. Our response, firstly, is to recognize the lie. What is the lie that I might be believing about who God is, who I am, or what the good life is? Is there a lie that I'm believing? Or two, to repent of your sin, to turn from it to agree with God about the situation that you've messed up and chosen something that you don't, that isn't actually good for you and turn from it. And three, that you would return to God, that you'd come out from behind the, the shrubs and believe that God actually wants to do life with you. What's, what's the response that you need to do tonight? Can I just pray for you and ask that God would reveal that, that right response for you and then we'll, we'll sing songs together. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you so much for sending your son to do what we could not do ourselves. This stuff is tricky because the lies that are in our head, they seem fine they seem desirable, but they're going to lead to pain. 
separation from you and the loss of the things that we really want in life. And so God, I just pray that you, by your spirit right now, would reveal to each of us, what is the lie that we're believing? How have our ideas become twisted by the enemy? God, give us truth. God, help us to turn from our sin. If there's something that we need to talk about with a friend tonight or in campus group this week, give us the confidence that that's a good idea. Help us to turn from our sin and to follow Jesus, the good life. And God, help us to return to you, to realize that you've been here the whole time. Thank you for your open arms of grace that welcome us back home. No matter where we've been or how long we've been gone, thank you, thank you that you always welcome us back home. So Father, I pray that you would welcome us back even right now. Help us see you as we sing. I pray that we would just celebrate the gospel. God, thank you for making yourself known to us. Thank you for your word. Be praised in this place. Pray this in your name, amen.